This audio is from South Fellowship Church, located in Littleton, Colorado. Amen. Amen. Hey, like, uh, like many other families across uh, the states, th- this week we uh, carved pumpkins together as a family. Um, which means that Kelly and I carved pumpkins um, together this week. We always have these sort of grandiose, um, ideal picture in our mind of what it's going to look like when we get together as a family and carve pumpkins. And and our our four-and-a-half-year-old and and our three-year-old, they don't always cooperate. Um, In fact, they don't cooperate at all. But but, but we had a great time. Um, Here is um, the pumpkin I carved for Ethan um, and... He likes Spider-Man, so that was my best attempt. And then um, Avery and Kelly and Reed, that's their uh, little kitty cat that they... So, so, so here's the deal. Um, I always have this picture in my mind of, you know, I'll be the one that, that cuts off the top. And then after that, Ethan, um, Avery, I want you to stick your hand inside and you're going to do the hard work of clearing out the, the guts and the innards of the pumpkin. It just never works out that way, does it? Those of you that have kids, you know that, and I don't know what age that changes. I'm excited for that, but, but they look on the inside and they're like, there's no way I'm touching that. In fact, they, they may touch it a little bit and then they are out of there, you know? So dad's left to scrape and clean and do the rest of the really hard work and actually all of the pumpkin carving, period. Well, here's the thing that I noticed about pumpkins. I'm a lot like a pumpkin, not in shape, but, but I'm a lot like a pumpkin because here's what I noticed, that, that on the outside, the, the pumpkin looks, looks pretty good, and then you cut the top off, and you pop it off, and you look inside, and, and inside, it's sort of a mess. I mean, on the outside, it's, it's sort of polished, it's clean, it looks good, but on the inside, on the inside, it's just sort of a, a sticky confused mess. Can I be honest with you? There's a lot of days that I feel like that. You know, where like on the outside, I'm able to pull it together, all right? I'm able to sort of look the part, but, but on the inside, on the inside, if you were to sort of pop the top off of my heart and look into my soul, um, a lot of times what you'd find is just sort of a mess, if I can be honest with you. And I started to realize as I thought about that, as I thought about that, that pumpkin and the way that uh, the outside looks so good and the inside looks so much like a mess, I started to think, you know what, I spend very little time actually thinking about what's going on inside of me. I don't know, I don't know if you can relate to that, but, but that I spend little, very little time thinking about what's going on inside. I mean, for the outside, I'll take care of the outside and, and I'll try to conform my behavior to fit what I want it to be. But when I think about like the internal workings of my soul, of my heart, of the health of my heart, I don't know that I think about that all too often. And you know what's interesting about that is that Jesus talked a lot about our heart, a lot. In fact, we've been going through this series on the Pharisees. If you're new here, um, we've been uh, exploring the way that Jesus interacts with this group of people uh, that were called the Pharisees. And one of the main things he had against them was they were really good at taking care of the outside, of sort of looking the part. But they spent very little time actually exploring 
their souls. Listen to the way that this happens during one interaction that Jesus has with a group of Pharisees. In Luke chapter 11, verse 37 through 40, it says this, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. Uh, Obviously, he didn't know Jesus all that well because that usually didn't turn out too well for Pharisees. Anyway, it's a tangent. And so he went in and he reclined at the table and the Pharisee was astonished, astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. So Jesus didn't wash his hands. He didn't use the Purell and he didn't use, I mean, he was sat down with dirty hands at the dinner table. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools, which is never what you want Jesus to say to you. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? The one who created the outside that you're so worried about, the washing of the hands, the looking the part, they're acting the right way, did he not also talk about and create the inside of your soul? And they have to say, well, yes. In fact, did you know that the book of Proverbs actually says that your heart is the wellspring of life, that from your heart, the the whole of your life flows? And then Jesus makes this really interesting point when he's talking to another group of Pharisees. He says this, you brood of vipers. Once again, um, he's not exactly handing out compliments here. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you're evil? And then he makes this this huge, um, overarching, umbrella, brash statement. And he says this, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Interesting. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to rewind throughout your week. What did your heart speak? Because Jesus just said that there's something internally inside of us. He calls it the heart, but there's something internally inside of us. And, and from that flows everything, flows, flows our, our motives, flows our actions, flows our thoughts, and also flows our speech. Here, here let, me, let me illustrate it for you like this this morning. Um, Jesus makes this point. And he said that all of us have something inside of us. All of us have something that, that fills up our soul, that fills up our heart. It, it's, it's the things that we worship. It's the, the things that we bow down to. It's the places that we find our worth. And, and he says that all of us have something down in our heart and our soul. But then, because I think most of us would be on board with that, but then he makes this really interesting statement. That whatever's inside of you always spills outside of you. So here's you this week. At work, whatever was in your heart and in your soul got spilled out a little bit to the people around you. In your family, whatever was in your heart, whatever's in your soul, that those things, they got spilled out to the people around you. And so it's no coincidence that Jesus makes a lot of, a big deal about what's on the inside. Because what's on the inside always spills into what's on the outside. 
And so today we're going to look at this interaction that Jesus has with, with, uh, with a group of people, and he's going to talk about these Pharisees again. And he's going to talk about, I think, the main thing that defines what's on the inside of you, that you spill out to everybody that you interact with throughout your week, whether you want to or not. See, no amount of willpower can change what's on the inside, and you will spill out what's on the inside eventually, eventually. And so he has this interaction with this group of Pharisees where he talks about that. He talks about the way that, that this action, this spilling action, has the ability to either um, define our relationships or destroy our relationships with everybody around us. We're going to look at Luke chapter 18. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. I thought for a long time, and even as I planned this series, that this was a passage that was about prayer. Prayer is an illustration in this passage, I think, for a deep reality of the way that your soul and my soul is wired. Prayer is the way that this comes out in this passage, but I don't know that this passage is primarily about prayer. Let me show you why. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. It reads like this. It says, and he also told this parable, and the he here is Jesus. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So that's the context of Jesus telling this parable. He, he says, all right, I'm going to tell you a story, a story that's going to have a, a deep spiritual meaning that potentially could change your life. And here's the, the framework for the story. The story's about someone who trusts in their own righteousness and then treats others with contempt because of that. And then he goes on to tell a story, a parable about prayer. But, but the framework is this person had something on the inside of them. And the thing on the inside of them was, I've arrived. I've made it. I'm good enough. God, I've done enough good in order to warrant your favor. This word righteousness literally means rightness. It means right standing. It means wholeness before God. And it says, the passage says, Jesus says that, that this person trusts. He has a conviction about his own rightness, the, the things that he's earned and done and his resume and the things he's achieved before God. And what Jesus says is that spilled out. It was in him, and so it just started spilling. Who's nervous that I'm actually going to dump that? Sorry. Started spilling out. Do you know that whatever's in spills out? And his problem was, his problem was he trusted in himself rather than in God. So I'm going to sort of flip that on its head. Because I don't want to teach you how to be Pharisees. I want to teach you how to be followers of Jesus. And so I think what we learn from this parable is that a grace-drenched heart, in contrast to, in contrast to a, a person that trusts in their own righteousness, but, but in contrast to that, a person that trusts in the grace and the mercy and the love of God in our weakness and in our need, a grace-drenched heart creates a relationally rich life. 
A grace-drenched heart creates a relationally rich life. So, so if you'll invite me in this morning to your soul and to your heart a little bit, can I, can I press a little bit today? Because as I, as I read this passage and actually laid into it and studied it, and, and I thought, man, I think God wants to really say something to us today. Because this tendency towards um, self-righteousness can happen the longer we sit in seats like this. Where we get away from the uh, reality that we are people in need and that he fills us. And when we get away from the reality that his grace has defined us and made us and shaped us. And so the thing that gets spilled out of us isn't necessarily grace-drenched hearts. It often looks a lot more like the Pharisee, at least for me, if I'm being honest. So can I challenge you? Can I invite you? What is your sort of the, the, the pattern of your life look like? Are your relationships life-giving? Are they, are they healthy? What is the way that you interact with other people show you about the inner condition of your heart? What's spilling out? What's spilling out? I love the way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great theologian and pastor, put it when he said this. Without Christ, we should not know God. We could not call upon his name nor come to him. And I think a lot of us in the room would say, amen, yes, totally true. He goes on, though, to say this. But without Christ, we also would not know our brother or our sister, nor could we come to him. The way is blocked by our own ego. Christ opened the way, he says, to God and to our brothers. See, if I could summarize Bonhoeffer, I think I would say that, that grace-drenched hearts lead to relationally rich lives. People that know and understand the goodness of the gospel, it leads them into this gift that God's given us of, of walking together in community. And without grace-drenched hearts, community is simply a fable that we'll continue to chase and hope for and long for and never quite get. But what he says and what the scriptures say is that Jesus opens the way. Well, well, let me show you how this plays out in the life of the Pharisee. Let me show you how this plays out. L listen again to verse 9. It says, And he, Jesus, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and he treated others with contempt. There's going to be really three main things that I want to say, uh, three main points that I think Jesus makes with, with what he says to, to us through this parable. And the first thing, and I want to draw your attention to this word that says, that's contempt. Contempt. Literally, in the Greek, it's, it means um, empty. It means uh, valueless or, or personless, almost. And so what Jesus says is that because of the way that this Pharisee trusts in his own rightness, he starts to look at other people differently. Remember, what's in spills out. And what he sees when he looks at this tax collector is, you're worthless, you're valueless, you're personless. 
You see, here's what he does. Here's what he does. And it's so dangerous. I, I see my, a subtle tendency in myself to do it often. We start to say to people and about people, your worth is determined by your output. What you produce. So a lot of us have this approach to God. What we produce for God determines what God thinks of us. But, but I think it goes further than just that. We start to look at other people and think, you know what? Um, they don't quite add up as far as behavior goes. And so their value is nil as a person. But you see, people that live with grace-drenched hearts that lead to relationally rich lives, here's the way that they operate a little bit differently. See, worth is assessed by looking past performance and into personhood. One of the surprises as I got into the, the study of the Pharisees a little bit more was that they had this view of everybody else that was not quite as good as the view that they had of themselves. That's saying it lightly. I mean, they were sort of up on this pedestal and everybody else fell a little bit below, fell a little bit short. Can I say something? Will you, will you look up at me for just a moment? the extent to which you and I are able to receive grace and love from Jesus will determine the way that we see the rest of the world. See, people who believe that in order for God to love them, they need to achieve and they need to do and they need to accomplish, start to impose that on everybody that they see. And so those who don't add up aren't worth it aren't worth it. And hey, you don't have to look too far to find people that don't add up, whose, whose actions don't fit the bill, who the way that they talk isn't right. And so it's easy, it's easy if our view is God loves me because of fill in the blank to find reasons to devalue people. Let me ask you a question. What would South Fellowship Church look like if we just lived out this one simple thing where we believe with everything we are that value is determined by the fact that God has stamped the image of himself on every single person? And it's not based on what they do, and it's not based on how they behave, and it's not based on what they put out, but it's based on the fact that God's put something in that what they put out doesn't change. What would happen? I mean, what would happen if we heard people's stories and really heard them? What would happen if we really walked with people? What would happen if we, we fought against the tendency that, that I have that maybe you have too? to draw conclusions about why people are in the situations they're in without really hearing them out. What might it look like? I think it would look like a whole lot less empty people walking around. But the hard part is, you guys, the hard part is you're always going to spill out what's inside. And unless you hear the God of the universe speak love over you, regardless of your performance and in spite of your circumstances, unless you hear that, unless your heart is grace-drenched, 
then that will never be what you spill out. Never be. Well, well, Jesus goes on. And he says this in verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. So we're finally going to get into, you're like, Paulson, he told us this was sort of about prayer, and we haven't even talked about that yet. Well, here we are. So the two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And you wonder if the, if, if the Pharisees just started, when Jesus started telling these parables after a while, if they just went, oh dear, what did we do now? You know, so, so anyway, so they went up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. Imagine the tax collector going, seriously, you're going to call me out like that right here, right now, okay? Notice, though, notice what Jesus says. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other tax collector, and the Pharisee, what, finish it for me, standing by himself. Well, that's weird, because he's in a whole crowd of people. Jump down to verse 13, and here's what you're going to see about the tax collector. He is standing, quote, far off. So you have two people in similar positions, but for two completely different reasons. One, you have the the Pharisee, and he's standing far off, and and here's the Pharisee's mindset. You see, in this public gathering, it was where where prayers were offered, where where, um, um, atonement was was sought out from God. They would happen twice a day. They would gather in the temple courts, and there were people like the tax collectors who would come. And the Pharisees had this idea of holiness, It was an idea of holiness that needed to be protected, needed to be guarded against. And so if anybody touched this Pharisee who was unclean, then this Pharisee would be unclean. And so he creates this sort of um, hard-to-protect-on-a-subway personal space bubble. Don't don't come near me. I don't want to be unclean. See, his ceremonial cleanliness would have been marred if he came in contact with somebody who was unclean. Well, the tax collector, though, the tax collector stands far off in in a similar way, but for a completely different reason. I think the tax collector stands far off because he feels unworthy to stand close to anyone. See, his brokenness, his pain... His unworthiness has actually fractured his ability to have relationships with anyone around him. And so for different reasons, but resulting in the same effect, you see that an inability to receive grace, whether it's because you think you don't need it or whether it's because you think God doesn't give it, spills out into the lives of people around you and it creates a pretty lonely existence. And can I just say, I think there's probably these two types of people here this morning. Uh, There's more than just these two, but there are definitely these two. These two categories of people who um, maybe have a little bit lower view of God's saturating grace in their soul than he would want them to. And here's how that plays out. Uh, For the people that are more in line with like the Pharisee, here's the thought. 
The thought is if I can stay away from evil and sin, I'll be more holy. Okay, this is just, it's going to hurt a little bit, okay? You invited me to dig, I'm going to dig. Okay? The thought is if I can stay away from people who are messed up, who are broken, who are hurting, and who are sinful, I will be more holy. Let me, let me point out what, it's, what, what we're doing, though. What we're doing is we are trusting in a righteousness of our own. So we create this whole, like, Christian subculture where, where, where we prevent ourselves as much as we can from interacting with people who, who might taint this. And I think what Jesus would say is, I created your holiness. I spoke it into existence. It's by my grace, not by your action anyway. And so your holiness is more powerful than their sinfulness. So enter in. And hey, 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 hey. Isn't that the meta-narrative of Scripture anyway? That God is perfect in holiness? And he leaves his holiness to step into our sinfulness? And our pain and our hurt and our depravity? And in John chapter 20, 21, I think, 2021, Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. So, hey, 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 will you look at me for just a second? If you feel like you have to protect your holiness against other people's sinfulness, we will never enter into a broken world in the way that Jesus invites us to. We'll be standing alone. Hey, what he's spoken over you is more powerful than anything you'll encounter in the world. I promise you that. I promise you that. I'm not promising it's going to be easy, but, but when his grace saturates our soul, it changes us. And can I just say, the world needs that to spill out on them. And it needs people who are close enough to, to them, to the brokenness, to the hurt, to the pain, so that when they get bumped, that's what spills out, is your saturated, grace-drenched heart. And it creates relationally rich lives. You see, the tax collector is sort of in the same boat for a different reason. <laughs> see, he believes a different lie. He believes the lie that the things that I've done determine the person that I am. So grace couldn't cover my past. It couldn't cover the extortion. It couldn't cover the fact that I've cheated. It couldn't cover the fact that I'm an adulterer. It couldn't cover the fact that I'm, you name it, he had all the excuses in the book, and so he stood off at a distance too. And many of our relationships are fractured, are broken, are a shadow of what God would intend that they are. Because in some way, shape, or form, we're relying on a righteousness of our own instead of relishing in the reality that we have grace-drenched hearts. So what's spilled out of you this week? What's spilled out of you this week? I love the way that Tim Keller puts it when he says this. In his book, The Reason for God, he says, when my own personal grasp of the gospel was very weak, my self-view swung wildly between two poles. You, you may relate to this. I do. When I was performing up to my standards in academic work and professional achievement or relationships, I felt confident but not humble. I was likely to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people, 
When I was not living up to standards, I felt humbled, but not confident, a failure. He writes, I discovered, however, that the gospel contained the resources to build a unique identity. That in the gospel, I'm so flawed, he writes, that God had to love me, and in the gospel, I'm so delighted in that he was glad to love me. That's what Keller writes. And he said, that foundation is the only foundation upon which you can build real, true relationships because it's the foundation upon which you can be humble but not crushed and confident yet not prideful. What does the way that you interact with people say about what you believe about what God says of you? Because here's what I think Jesus would say to us. Is that grace-drenched hearts lead to relationally rich lives because the way that we engage the world around us is established not based on self-preservation but on selfless love. See, the Pharisee and the tax collector, they essentially have the same problem. They're obsessed with themselves. One's obsessed with his pride and his goodness. The other is obsessed with his brokenness and his pain. And it causes both of them to stand alone. Well, it makes sense. Because what's inside always spills out. What's inside always spills out, and so self-righteousness, it spills out in self-preservation, because if you're in charge of your righteousness, if you define it, then you need to guard it, but if you're grace-drenched, you don't need to protect it. You actually, ironically, are freed to love. You're free to love. So the Apostle Paul writes to this church at Galatia, And he says this, for you were called to freedom, brothers, after four chapters of unpacking the glory of the gospel. Only, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh to just serve you, but through love, serve one another. He says, that now that you don't have to preserve yourself and your goodness, that you're actually freed to think about other people. It's the thing that defined early Christian community. They actually lived out what Jesus taught in John chapter 13. He said, a new command I give you, that you love one another. Now listen to this. Just as I have loved you. Right? Like, it's almost as though he says, when that gets in you, it's going to spill out of you. So, so follower of Jesus, be confident in the fact that he loves you. Allow your heart to soak in his goodness and his grace. As I've loved you, you love one another. Let it, let, it just, let, it, let it spill out. By this, he says, all people will know that you are my disciples. Well, the story goes on. He says, I thank God in his prayer that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week, which was more than the law required. I give tithes on, I give tithes off of all that I get, including my spices. But the tax collector, it says, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
Let me pause there and point out what's happening. The Pharisee has a copy on hand of his resume. Right? And he brings it into the temple. He brings it into his interaction with God and he holds it up and he says, God, aren't I great? As if he expected God to go, whoa. You know what? Heaven's pretty great, but you are awesome. I mean, all that I've created is pretty good, but you are the crowning achievement of it all. How could we do it without you, Pharisee? So so he has a copy of his resume, and he also has a copy of the tax collector's resume. And so he goes, God, aren't I good? And in case God were to maybe hesitate just a little bit, he pulls out the tax collector's resume. In light of this, aren't I good? And it's this performance-driven acceptance comparison culture that we live in. That at its core says, if I'm better, a little bit better than somebody else, then that means I'm good. Could we just admit, spiritual comparisons are silly. Not only are they silly, but they're usually pretty tainted toward the one giving the test. Can we admit that? Like when I compare people, I have this uh, uncanny ability to always come out on top. It's like if I write the test, I'm going to do pretty good on it. See, the problem with that is that we're taking the wrong test. The problem with that is the Pharisee was taking the wrong test. He was comparing himself to the tax collector. And in that sense, he came out on top. And most people who compare themselves compare themselves to other people. But I want to propose that maybe that's the wrong person to compare to. What if we compare ourselves to God? I mean, where do we stand then? I mean, what's he going to go, wow, that, that really was impressive about? At its core, it's pride. At its core, it's lifelessness. It's lifelessness because what happens if he doesn't live up to his standards after this day? He's shameful. He's embarrassed. He's unable to go on. And can I just take, a, take a, just a pause, a timeout? See, guys, if we don't get these things right, if we don't get this right, that our worth comes solely from the God of the universe and not based on our, re, our, our, our output, think of, just think of how that affects your relationship with your kids if you're a parent. If your belief is... Hey, what we, what we produce defines who we are. If your kids don't produce, are you still able to love them? If what they see from you is, listen, if I perform enough, if I do enough, if I achieve enough, then I'm good enough. If that's what's in here, then their view of us, of our, if those are our kids, is going to be, if I do well enough, dad's going to be happy with me. If I don't, he's not. Got to get this right. We've got to get this right. For your joy, for God's glory, we have to be confident in nothing except his blood. It's enough, you guys. It's enough. 
And if our worth is found in anything other than that, it's going to spill out into these performance-based, religious-driven traps. In contrast, though, look at this with me. The tax collector beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, Jesus says, went down from this house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself. He says, you want to play the game where you lift yourself up? You're on your own and you'll be humbled. But the one who humbles himself, who, who comes in low, who comes in through death, through the cross, through need, through crying out to God, he goes, those are the type of people that I lift up. Those are the type of people that I lift up. He reaches out for mercy. And you see, you and I, we have this weird thing about us as people. We will exhaust every possible option before we go, I'm out. I can't do it. And so we often only reach for mercy when we're in the same position as a tax collector. Empty and broken and in need. Well, well, let me bring this back to our main point. If grace-drenched hearts lead to relationally rich lives, how does this talk to that? Uh, Here's how. Uh, Because comparison is able, finally, to be rejected. Because need is recognized. Hear me on this. Need is recognized. You are a needy person. And provision or grace is celebrated. It's the thing that breaks down the comparison because every single follower of Jesus is admitting in order to get in the door, I'm a needy, broken, unable on my own person. And ironically, it's that admission that creates a capacity for us to walk together in community. You see, the true traps most people fall into is that we either don't recognize that we're needy people We think we're going to pull the Pharisee card and and do it all on our own, or we don't recognize that God graciously fills and heals and speaks to needy, broken people. You'll notice the the tax collector comes in a mess, cries out for mercy, receives it, and then we don't know how he leaves. Jesus doesn't say he cleaned up his act and then he left. All he says, all Jesus says is that he cried out for mercy and I gave it. I gave it. Belief in Jesus requires both. It requires a recognition of our need, but it also requires a receiving of his beautiful, wonderful grace. And you see, I think what Jesus would say to you and I today is that when we approach God in need, it results in you and I receiving sufficient grace. It will always be enough. And also, because what's in you, if that's what's in you, that's what spills out of you, it also will mean that you and I walk in life-giving, beautiful, deep, vulnerable relationships with other people. So what's inside of you? Well, what's inside and what's spilling 
out to the world around us. There may be some people here who you're like the the tax collector, and you're going, I'm broken, I am empty, and Jesus, I need you. I'm finally coming to you empty-handed, and I need you to fill me. There might also be some people who maybe God's just poking on your heart right now and saying you've sort of moved into that category with the Pharisee where, where you're not convinced of your own righteousness, and so it affects the way that you see everybody around you. So maybe today he's saying, come home, come home. Here's a beautiful thing about the gospel. Jesus knew that you and I have really bad memories. He did, he does. And so he set up this, um, this beautiful dinner where on the first night that, that he did it, he, he, he did this with his disciples on the Passover night, and he took bread, and he broke that bread, and he said, this is my body, I'm giving it for you. And then after dinner, he takes this cup of wine, and he says, and this is like the new covenant which is made in my blood, and if you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you remember my death until I come again, my death that says I love you. And my death that says I'm for you because you couldn't do it on your own. And my death that lavishes grace upon grace that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And I think Jesus just had this idea, this conviction, that when that type of grace gets in you, it gets out of you. It gets out of you. So is it getting out? We're going to celebrate communion today. If you're a follower of Jesus, it is a celebration. It's a celebration that his grace is sufficient, but it's also, it's also an encouragement to you and I to look at our lives. The scriptures say, examine yourself. Are there any relationships that are broken? If so, maybe it means that we aren't really convinced of who Jesus says we are. Uh, if there's anything that's sort of outstanding, would you commit to before you come and take of the table, if there's a relationship in your life that needs to be made right, will you commit to doing that before you come to the table? This table is open to everybody who's a follower of Jesus. And if that's not you, um, one, I would ask you not to come to the table, but two, I would say, is there any reason why today isn't the day? that you come to the end of your resources and you cry out for his. Would you pray with me as we get ready to go to the table? Jesus, we love you. Oh, we're thankful, Lord, that you loved, loved us first. So, Father, as we approach this table, this declaration of grace and mercy given, and as we eat of this bread and as we drink of this cup, would you remind us of your blood that was spilled, your righteousness that's given, that we would be confident that it's enough for us. Jesus, may it fill us. May it fill us. Uh, for those who are in the room today and... Um, you're not a follower of Jesus yet, can I encourage you, just like the tax collector in this story, to just cry out to God for mercy, for forgiveness. Admit your need, 
receive his grace, and then come and celebrate the provision of his goodness. Lord, we love you. We love you, we love you. We celebrate how good you've been to us today. It's in your name that we pray, amen. This audio was from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship Church, please visit southfellowship.org.